Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, today, You will be with me in paradise. The criminal looks at Christ being crucified between himself and another thief, and he recognizes in him the true Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. He puts his faith in him. He asks merely to be remembered when Christ comes into his kingdom. And Jesus promises to him paradise. Jesus is able to promise the thief paradise because, in a way, he himself is a thief. You see, on the cross, Jesus takes that which doesn't belong to him, our Sin, your sin. He is a holy Robin Hood of sorts. He takes our sin to himself and then he plunders his own riches and gives them to poor criminals like us. He is gracious. And indeed, he has the power to save. He says in John 5, 24, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Is belief really enough, though? Is faith enough? Is grace enough? What about the the serial killer? At the very end of his life, says, I believe in Jesus. Is that enough to make him right with God and and rescue him? Or maybe a little bit more poignantly, uh, imagine yourself uh, spending some, some time in hospice with a loved one who has spent a lifetime denying Christ. And throughout a series of a couple weeks, you, you sit with them and pray over them and 
hold their hand as they struggle to breathe and, and sing psalms to them and read the scriptures to them. And then on, on their last day, they, they say to you, I want to become a Christian. How do I do that? You tell them, put your faith in Jesus. And, and with their, their dying breath, they say, I, I believe Jesus is my king. Is that, is that faith enough to save them? Or is something more required? And that's the question before us in our text this morning in Acts chapter 15. Is faith enough? Is grace enough? And the stakes are obviously really, really high. You see, a council is gathered and they are debating this question. What is the message of Christianity? And, and there is one group of people, Jewish Christians, that are arguing that in order to be saved, you must not just believe in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. Circumcision is a synecdoche, that is a catch-all term for keeping the whole law. So when they say circumcision, they mean being circumcised and keeping, adhering to the entire law of Moses. And so to have salvation, you need Jesus and all of the law. That's what one group argues. And then there's a second group of, Peter, or a group of people comprised of Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James, who ultimately win the day and argue, no, no, Jesus is all you need. Faith is all you need. They will argue that the message of, of Christianity is that God loves bad people so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive them. So that if anyone stops trusting in their own good works and starts trusting in Jesus, they will be declared good forever and be saved from judgment. Indeed, they will determine that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. That's our main idea this morning as we walk through the text. And I want to exhort you, there's only one application this morning is going to come at the very end. I want to exhort you to think about, meditate on, consider God's grace. You can see your outline there before you. We'll pray and consider the context and then get started. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can come here together this morning without any pretense about how good we are. That we can come without any need to be impressive, which is such a great relief. We thank you that we can listen to your word and be shaped by it. We ask that you would meet us here now that you would send your spirit to us. Speak, Lord. Help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared and help us to listen well. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. So we've said in the book of Acts, Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down, and the church 
goes out. And as the church goes out, God brings people in. The whole book has revolved around that mini great commission in verse 8 of chapter 1, where Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem first, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus then ascends to his throne in heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2, and then that witness fills up Jerusalem and spills out into Judea and Samaria and ultimately is going to the ends of the earth. And we've said one of the major themes of Acts is that in the face of adversity, the word of God prevails. And so we've seen opposition rise up against the gospel message. As Christ is proclaimed, the preachers of Christ are being persecuted, and yet we see time after time the word of the gospel goes forward. New converts are made. God's plans are accomplished. And we saw that theme uh, the last few weeks as we considered Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey in chapters 13 up to where we are now today in chapter 15. They were oppressed, but God's word went forth. And we've seen many Gentiles be converted. And we saw this before back in Acts chapter 10. Remember, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius' whole household believes. But, but this is a little different. That's just one household. Now we've got hundreds and hundreds of Gentiles being assimilated into the church. And so the question is, do they have to become Jewish to become Christian? That's, that's kind of the argument that's going to come from these men who come down from Judea. We will meet them in uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Let's back up. We're going to go into chapter 14. So Paul and Barnabas, they get back from their trip, and uh, verse 27, after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent considerable time with the disciples. Some men came down from Jerusalem, I'm sorry, from Judea, (laughs) and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, I do love in some translations it says they had no little disagreement with them. There's an argument going on here. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so we see that many Gentiles have been converted and that many within the church are celebrating this. They're, they're happy about it, but not everyone is happy about it. We have these group of Jewish Christians who think that the gospel isn't quite right here, that the Gentiles haven't done enough by just believing in faith, that they also need to believe in the law of Moses, they need to be circumcised, and they need to follow all of those laws in the Old Testament. And notice this, this is kind of a a little sidebar, but this is coming from a group that's tied to the Pharisees. See that in verse 5? 
Pharisees stood up and said it's necessary to circumcise them. And what's interesting here is I think when we go through the Gospels, we see the Pharisees as these kind of villains, right? Like picture them with a black hat, like laughing maniacally in their evil lair as they plot to kill Jesus. But really, that's not the perspective of the Pharisees we should have. They, they certainly oppose Jesus, but they are religious leaders. And the readers in the first century would have considered Pharisees the good guys. The, these are men who are devoted to the Bible. They, they believe in the bodily resurrection, that they try to keep the law. They're pretty good guys. And so it should make sense to us that God would save some of these Pharisees. He's brought salvation to men that existed within this group that vehemently opposed Jesus. It's ironic and it's, it's just really awesome. God is, is so gracious. But because of their background, their familiarity with the scriptures, their devotion to the law, we can kind of begin to understand their argument. We can kind of begin, if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, where they're coming from, right? This is, they're, they're kind of doing the math, right? The promises were made to Abraham, who was Jewish. The people of God is, is a Jewish people. Jesus, the Messiah, is, is Jewish. And to be part of the Jewish community in the Old Testament, you had to do all the, the Jewish stuff circumcision, the, the keeping of the law. And so they, they go, thus, this makes sense. If the Gentiles are to be included in the people of God, they've got to keep the law. They've got to be culturally Jewish like the rest of us. They've got to join the people of God. It makes sense. But the problem is, what they're attempting to do is shoehorn the old covenant into the new they're trying to, to take the, the new wine of the new covenant and put it in the old wineskins of the old covenant, and it is a failing proposition. It doesn't work. There's discontinuity here because Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly, abrogating those civil and ceremonial laws. No longer will God's people be identified with a nation or with those who are biologically descended from Abraham, from now on, God's people will be identified with those who have faith. Remember, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.7, it's those who have faith who are Abraham's children. The church is this, as we'll see James tell us, this new work that God is doing, this new tent of David that is made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The laws, they no longer apply. They've been fulfilled. Their demands have been fulfilled. Jesus is enough to save anyone, even those dirty Gentiles. The Pharisees, though, are arguing, and it, make, it makes sense in context. And so we can sympathize with them a little bit, but I think we should learn something here. You can have really vast biblical knowledge. You can maybe even have, again, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. You can have good intentions. So this good intentions, good knowledge of the Bible. You can even have good arguments. I think their arguments are, are somewhat good. And you can still be dead wrong. Here's the warning. Many false teachers have good intentions, they have good arguments, and they even use the Bible, but they are dead wrong. And they will lead 
you and me and anyone else astray. And so, so what we, we must do is be wise about what God has said to us in his word. Gather with those who hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Pray and seek God's word. We, we want to do this together to ensure that we do not slip into error. Notice what Paul and Barnabas don't do. They don't go like, oh, these guys disagree. Let's not make a thing of it. Let's just live and let live. Right? It's, you know, doctrine divides. It's all about loving each other, man. It's okay that they think differently about these things. Let's just, we're just going to love them and we're not going to make a big deal out of it. No, some things are worth fighting for. To lose the doctrine of grace is to lose the gospel itself. This is why we read in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about the issue. They're getting everybody from the churches together to make sure that the church universal can speak authoritatively to this issue about what the gospel is. Paul feels very strongly about this. He he writes in Galatians about uh, this same circumcision issue. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Let him be anathema. These are strong words from Paul because he understands the gravity of the situation in Galatia, and he understands the gravity of the situation here in Acts chapter 15. If we lose the gospel, well, then Christianity isn't unique at all. If we misunderstand how someone is saved, if we misunderstand the message of Christianity, then it loses its power. So Paul says we we can't compromise on this. Him and Barnabas recognized that a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. That a a Jesus plus circumcision program will not save. It will crush. And so uh, they pack their bags and they head for Jerusalem, which would have been a trip of about 250 miles and would have taken them about a month to complete, okay? I don't know about you, but I've I've done some traveling and it can be rough. Like I thought it was really rough. We, We flew from uh, Pittsburgh to Beijing, China about five years ago. Multiple airplanes, did it in about 20-ish hours. I'm telling you, it was rough. I had to watch some in-flight movies and eat some of those peanuts and, uh, you know, you got that little, that little drink. It was really hard. I was exhausted, even though I had all those comforts. Like, these guys don't have any of those comforts. And yet they travel because it's that important. They want to get this message right. And so they correct the circumcision party in love, and they call this council. Look with me at verse 6. The apostles and the elders gather to consider this matter. 
After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Paul and Barnabas describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, it's his Jewish name, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. And so Peter makes an argument, Barnabas and Paul make an argument, James makes an argument from Scripture, and they arrive at this conclusion that indeed we are saved by grace. I'm actually going to start with James's argument because I think it's the most confusing, and then we're going to work our way backwards to Peter. And James uh, seems to be, and I think that's why sometimes we come to this chapter and get a little confused, he seems to be saying two different things, right? He, he says in 19, In my judgment, we should not cause difficulties or troubles for those among the Gentiles who turn from God. And so he, he says that, it seems like, out of one side of his mouth. And then out of the next side of his mouth, in verse 20, he says, But instead we should write to them to abstain from polluted things sexual immorality, yada, yada, yada. So you're kind of like, all right, the Gentiles, they are saved by grace. They don't need to do anything else, but they need to do all this stuff. Right? He's not contradicting himself here. What he's saying is that the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. In order to be in right relationship with God, the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish, but they can't stay pagan Gentiles either. See, all these things listed, and we're going to devote uh, the next time we come to Acts 15 together, it's a, it's a whole sermon on the second half of this. Uh, these things all have to do with pagan worship festivities. And so if you would eat meat, this is how you would eat meat. And so um, while they might be free to do that, James is going to compel them, love is going to compel them to consider their brothers and to live in a way that is Christ-like. And so um, we'll talk about that next time, right? should sound a little bit familiar when we were in, in 1 Corinthians. Anyhow, James says, we're saved by grace. Gentiles are saved just like we are. Peter's right. The scriptures agree with him. They don't have to be Jewish to be saved. But they do have to turn from their old ways of life. And the scripture he appeals to, uh, he says prophets, and so he's actually kind of trying to give us a summary of what the, the prophets broadly 
are saying. He could have quoted any number of prophets. He chooses Amos. He says, after these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. I think John Stott's really helpful. He was just dead on on this, and so I'm going to quote him. He says, God promises first to restore David's fallen tent and rebuild its ruins, which Christian eyes see as a prophecy of the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, the seed of David, and the establishment of his people, so that, secondly, a Gentile remnant will seek the Lord. In other words, through the Davidic Christ, Gentiles will be included in this new community. So you can see James is saying, Scriptures agree with what Peter has said about grace. God is rebuilding his people, and it now includes Gentiles. So Peter isn't just making this up. The experience of Paul and Barnabas, it's not final, but it agrees with what God has told us he was going to do in Scripture. God promised he would do this, and now he is performing the act, and we best recognize it. The Gentiles have been saved, and God didn't require them to be circumcised in order to receive his Holy Spirit. You can see that um, Paul and Barnabas agree with Peter there in verse 12. They simply describe the signs and wonders that God has done among the Gentiles, saying God is is working among them. These miracles that have gone on among them have served the message of Christ going forward. They've been converted in droves. That's why we're having this conversation. And then it all goes back to Peter, who's pretty plainly tells us what he thinks. I want to read what he says again. It says, you're aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? And so Peter is, I think, quite plainly to the knowledge of those who are in the room, appealing to his experience, which happens back in Acts chapter 10. You guys remember uh, Peter is, he puts his order in at this food counter, and then he goes up on the roof, and he, he falls asleep, kind of dreaming about food. And there's that, that picnic-like blanket that he sees come down from heaven, and it's got bacon and all this other food that's just not kosher on it. And God says to Peter, Peter, Rise, kill, eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not, not going to do that. I'm not falling for this little testing. If I, if I were to eat that food, I would be made unclean like the Gentiles. And God responds to Peter, surprisingly. He says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Peter wakes up and he's like, what was that dream? It's weird. And he's looking for a Snickers because he's not him when he's hungry. And then there's a a ring at the doorbell. There's a group of folks uh, that are associated with a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. And he is sending for Peter. And Peter 
right when they get to the door, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, go with these guys without any doubt, without any question. And so he does. He goes to Cornelius' house and he stands up and he says, this whole household was there, a bunch of people around. He stands up and says, you all know that a good Jewish boy like me shouldn't be around a bunch of impure Gentiles like you. But I'm here because God told me not to declare unclean what God has made clean. And Cornelius says to him, I'm not offended. Four four days ago at this hour, I was praying and an angel appeared to me. There's an angel of the Lord showed up to me and told me to send for you so that I could hear what you have to say. So tell me what God has commanded you. Peter then says, I see that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is acceptable to him He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Peter then recounts the events that took place leading to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This sermon culminates in verse 43. says, All the prophets testify about Jesus that through his name, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. And we read, but while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. This is a real wow moment in Acts back in chapter 10. And it brings clarity to the situation here in Acts chapter 15. The Gentiles are included in the people of God, not by a physical circumcision, but by a circumcision of the heart performed by God. We have in Acts 10, Pentecost part 2, Pentecost the sequel. And the Holy Spirit falls on those non-Jewish people in the same way he fell on the Jewish people back in Acts chapter 2. You have all the same elements. You have Peter preaching. You have people believing, speaking about God's great works in other languages, and then repenting and being baptized. And we are to see these two things as similar events. God's confirmation about what he is doing. The gospel has moved on to the Gentiles and they didn't have to be physically circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. God can save them simply by their belief. Verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What this teaches us is that God's people are not mono-ethnic, they are multi-ethnic. God's people are not monoracial, they are multiracial, interracial. One doesn't have to give up one's culture in order to become a Christian. Right? To become a Christian, you don't have to figure out how to become like middle class in spirit. And, and you don't have to be white. Or maybe if you're in Africa, you don't have to become black. All of these different cultures fit inside of God's scheme of salvation. That's why people in the book of Revelation from every tongue, tribe, and nation worship Christ together. 
God sees beauty in the kaleidoscope of cultures and colors that he has made. He's not going to do away with that, not even in the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to preserve it. And the Gentiles don't need to follow Jewish customs in order to be saved. There is no cultural superiority among the Jews. God saves Jew and Gentile alike. Peter's made this plain, right? He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And then he comes with this warning in verse 10. He says, don't sin against God by telling those who have been saved by grace through faith to earn their salvation by works. Don't, don't, don't tell them that they have to earn it. Is it solely by grace? Sometimes I think we, what is grace? I don't want to assume, I should have defined this already. Well, what is grace? Sometimes we get the definition unmerited favor. Right? I think that's good. It's a gift, can't earn it. Both are fine. I think a better definition of grace, though, than what I'm going to give to you, is getting the opposite of what you deserve. Getting the opposite of what you deserve. It's like if one of my children disobeys me, instead of giving them a timeout, I give them a cupcake. That's grace. Or, or maybe it'll help you imagine uh, that you, you decide that you want to further your education and you sign up for an aerospace engineering course down here at UVA. And then you don't attend any of the classes. You don't, you don't study at all. But for some reason, you're like, I'm going to show up to the final. And so, so you show up to the final, no knowledge about aerospace engineering, and you, you have a test on your desk, and you flip that test over, and your name's already written on it for you, and every answer is filled out. And at the bottom, there's a little note. The creator of this class and of this test has taken the test for you. You will receive the grade of A. Right? That's bonkers. You don't deserve an A. You deserve to fail. This is what grace is. It's getting the opposite of what we deserve. We have all rebelled against God and followed our hearts instead of listening to his word. We all deserve to be condemned as the criminals we are. And God has given us grace. He invites us to trust in Christ. We deserve wrath. And he, he invites us to enjoy his wealth by faith in Christ. It is, is an act of grace. This is what grace is. And this is how God has saved the Gentiles. Not by telling them they need to get to work. Right now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? What Peter is saying here is that the yoke of the law that you would have them obey is something that you haven't been able to obey yourselves. We cannot keep the law, is what he's saying. How, how could you eliminate this wonderful benefit of knowing Christ? He says, Jesus doesn't take the heavy yoke of the law and press it down on our necks. He breaks it and then he calls us to himself and he gives us his easy yoke. 
He calls us to simply trust in him. This is where I think oftentimes we as Christians get the gospel just so twisted up. Because we, we, we might not say Jesus in circumcision, but we'll say, okay, to become a Christian, you need to come to Jesus, and we'll even make good things that are good acts of obedience, almost like additions to grace. Like, should, should you be baptized if you are a Christian following Jesus? Yes, that's what obedience looks like. Does being baptized after you come to faith in Jesus contribute in any way to your salvation? Absolutely not. We do this. Maybe it's not with baptism. Maybe you think about church attendance or um, reading your quiet time. Like We somehow go, I'm going to be more saved or more acceptable to God if I, if I get my stuff together and start performing. If I get everything on my to-do list done. Right? I, I'm going to wake up at the right time and I'm going I'm to read my Bible and almost set up like a ladder that we have to climb each and every day to get into right relationship with the Lord again. I've got Jesus, but, but I've got to get right back into that right spiritual zone with him. Friends, we start at the top of the ladder each and every day. There, there isn't a ladder. We, we are connected to God in Christ. He loves us perfectly. Same, he loves us the same on our worst day as he does on our best day. Because he is gracious, his mercies are new every morning. When we kind of have this perspective that, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus and then it's about doing more good stuff than bad stuff, we've really developed a, like a karma Christianity that's no different than the rest of the world religions. If you peel back the onion a little bit, you look at all the world religions, they all say the same thing. Do more good stuff than bad stuff. Even if you talk to someone who says, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious, you say, well, describe to me your spiritual, spiritual reality. What, what's, the, what's your spirituality like? They'll eventually get to something like, well, do, good, do more good stuff than bad stuff. Put good vibes out into the universe and you'll be rewarded. It's, it's not the gospel. That's actually crushing. Because we can't, we can't live up to God's standards and we can't even live up to our own standards. We fail and falter. We will not find satisfaction by simply uh, becoming a, a better me. Like you're not going to get satisfaction and rest by becoming a better you because even the best version that you can build of yourself will fail and falter. Sin. Even the best version of you apart from Christ deserves hell. And Christianity preaches something way different than do more good stuff than bad stuff. The message of Christianity is that God loves people, bad people, so much that he sends Jesus to forgive their sins and free them from death. We're not saved on the basis of what we do. Do we want to do good works? Yes, this is love for God that we obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. But that's not what saves us. His grace is what saves us. We're saved not because of anything we do, but because of who he is. We're saved because he decided to save us and he didn't have to. Nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation Peter says, I, I, this is Old Testament language. It's like, why are you putting God to the test? 
He said, don't test God. Don't tell people that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ that they need to earn anything, right? Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It reminds me of a, uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have you ever seen, some of you, most of you have, it's a war movie. And uh, I came across this thing where a former army ranger named Tom Allen described his first viewing of Saving Private Ryan. He says, I went to the theater, and it, it, was, you know, it was packed theater, and I was as proud as I possibly could have been as uh, rangers took Omaha Beach, and uh, then they, they received the mission to go and try to save Private Ryan. He was the only remaining brother of a group of brothers that was alive. All had been sent to war. He was the only one alive left, and so the goal was to get him out. And so uh, this group of rangers goes on a mission to find Private Ryan, and they get in skirmish after skirmish, and then uh, they finally find him. And to their surprise, he's basically like, I'm not coming with you. He says, if I, if I leave now, most of my men, this whole group of people I'm with, they're probably going to die. We're shorthanded as it is. I can't leave. And so the group of army rangers decides to stay and to fight. And there is a bloody battle. It's complete with all the, the gore and... and Nastiness that you would expect of a Hollywood film. Really good stuff. But at the end of the battle, after the battle has been won, one of the main characters, who's played by Tom Hanks, is sitting on the ground. He's been shot. And he calls, calls Private Ryan over to whisper something in his ear as he dies. He says the, the whole theater is crying because Tom Hanks is about to die. He says, but I began crying because of something else. Because what Tom Hanks said, what he whispered in Private Ryan's ear was terrible. So Tom Hanks whispered in, in the private's ear, earn this. As he died, he said to him, earn this. Mr. Allen says, the reason this made me so angry it's because no ranger would ever say, earn this. Why? Because the ranger's motto for the past 200 years has not been, earn this. The ranger's motto for the past 200 years has been, sua sponte. I chose this. Of my own accord. So when Private Ryan bent down, if Tom Hanks was really a ranger, he would have said, sua sponte, I chose this. This is free. You don't pay anything for this life. I gave up my life for you. Friends, when we look at the cross, Jesus is not saying to you, earn this. He's saying, I chose this. I chose you. You don't, you don't have to pay anything for it. You can't. I give it to you. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. Friends, anytime you or me or anyone tries to add to the gospel 
that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we try to add to that, we insult Jesus. We're making a declaration that his death wasn't good enough to save us. That's a lie. The blood of Christ is more than enough to cleanse us from every guilty stain. The life of Christ is more than enough to fulfill all righteousness. The power of Christ is more than enough to raise the dead. The grace of God is more than enough to make dead sinners like you and me come alive. We were dead in our sins, but the grace of God showed up. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians, it's by grace you have been saved in this not of yourself so that no one can boast. It's the gift of God. God does this. God makes dead people come to life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can't contribute to it in any way. The Gentiles couldn't contribute to it by their circumcision, and we can't contribute to it by what will become damnable good works if we're relying on them for peace with God. Only Christ can give us salvation. Or as we formulated it when we went through the book of Galatians, first year I was here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel, the, the message of Christianity. It's that God loves bad people so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive them. So that if anyone stops trusting their own good works and starts trusting Jesus, they will be declared good forever and be saved from judgment. That's the message of Christianity. Is faith enough? Yes. Is Simply believing enough? Yes. Is grace enough? Yes. It's why we sing grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. His grace is enough for him to say to us today when we come to him in faith with empty hands, you will be with me in paradise. Father, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross of Christ we cling. We thank you that we, when, we, when we come to the cross, that great fountain filled with blood that flowed from Jesus' veins, that we are washed of all our guilty stains. We thank you that right now in Christ, by your grace, you Love us. We have been made perfect. We thank you that you give us grace so that as we struggle against sin and suffering, that we can become more and more like Jesus each day. More and more in practice what we've been declared already, which is holy. Father, we thank you that even though we are more wicked than we ever dared dream, that in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. To him be the glory. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.